0: I really like that Mentimeter doesn't have annoying music built in like Kahoot does.
1: <laughs> oh, I hate that music. Oh, I hate that music. Oh, this just drives me nuts.
0: Uh, that middle test is really good for getting them to come back from Tim Hortons on time. <laughs> A lot of us do open things and we don't even realize that is part of this open education movement. And-
1: Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. We have Laura Killam on this uh, episode with us today. Laura is a creative educator from Sudbury, Ontario with expertise using innovation to support open learning. She's got a Bachelor of Science degree in Nursing and a Masters of Science in Nursing from Laurentian University. She's worked as a nurse and a researcher and now she's an educator. And it was our pleasure to sit down and talk with her about her experiences and what she's doing and a lot of good stuff in this episode. You're really going to enjoy it. She also has a blog and a YouTube channel that we'll provide the links for in the mystical show notes. So sit back and relax and enjoy our episode with Laura Killam. All right, we are recording. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to... Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. We have a very special guest on the show today. Her name is Laura Killam, and she is from Ontario, Canada. She is a nurse, and that's all I'm going to tell you because Laura, we want you to tell our guests who you are and kind of your background and how you got into ed.
0: Okay. Uh, I always knew that I wanted to be an educator. I'm from a northern community called Sudbury, Ontario. And I'm not sure if it's because my mom was an educator or if it's because I've just kind of always liked teaching, but I went into my nursing education knowing that I wanted to teach nursing one day. So I accomplished my goal and I became a teacher at Cambrian College um, in Sudbury, Ontario.
1: That's right. So Sudbury, Ontario. How many people live in Sudbury?
0: Oh, I don't know.
2: <laughs> All the hard any no. questions yeah, yeah. here. There we go.
1: Yeah, uh, That's a hard question. Ball. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So <laughs> how long have you been a nurse, Laura?
0: uh oh my god yeah. uh. <laughs> uh, well i graduated in 2000 and um i graduated in 2007 and started working as a nurse and i've been teaching since uh 2008 actually but not full-time i've only been teaching full-time for a little over 10 years
1: very cool did you specialize in any of the nursing or did you just go into general nursing
0: I started out on cardiology, but I didn't last on cardiology very long. I did my final fourth year placement there as well as I worked full time there for three months and then because I was starting my masters, um, I needed something that was going to work well with family life because I also had a young child at the time. So I moved to long term care and then I specialized in long term care after that.
1: Ah, okay, very cool. My wife is a nurse and she found her way into long-term long-term care as well. So I'm just just curious as to where you landed. That's very cool.
0: Yeah, you know, long-term care is one of those things that sometimes people say, oh, long-term care, that must be easy, but it's actually not because as <laughs> as you might know, as a registered nurse in long-term care, you have a lot of responsibility and you need to draw on a lot of your assessment skills and make decisions. And sometimes you're it in the building. And so you have to make some really important decisions about client care.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, it's a, a, like a lot of different aspects of nursing. You got to have... Just this special touch, right? So, I mean, I've, I've, I, I don't know how my wife does it either, but I mean, she hasn't been nursing for a while because since our youngest was born, she's been at home, but um, just kind of one of those things where you go, man, you're dealing with the family, you're dealing with the doctor, you're dealing with your own uh, co-workers and colleagues, and you're doing all this extra stuff that's going along with it. And it's just like, man, it's a lot of work and a lot of pressure and a lot of emotional baggage, right? So not that I'm not that I'm saying baggage in a bad way, but it's just a ton of stuff that you have to think about and work through. And then there's your own feelings and emotions with it too, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You deal with a lot of stuff in long term care and uh, it definitely takes a lot of critical thinking and and resilience. And, you know, so we have to try and teach our students those skills. And sometimes those soft skills are the things that um, don't always come out on something like standardized testing. Right.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. When you when you mentioned critical skills, critical thinking skills, are you finding students are coming to class with a a good base for critical thinking skills? Or are you finding like you're going to have to go and start right at the foundation of it?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. And I don't know if everyone would agree with me. Um, I think that students come Uh, into our first year with a lot of uncertainty about how to manage nursing situations, but if you can promote their thought in the right ways and if you can ask them the right questions, I think they actually do come with the skills. Um, I teach in the first and third year of our program primarily, and I would say they're definitely better at bringing in the nursing knowledge when they come to the third year, but of course that's something that we're teaching them in the program. I would say that the students do come to the classes with the ability to do it. They just sometimes don't know um, how to activate that ability.
1: Ah, uh, okay, okay, that's cool. Um, so I only I know Chad's got a bazillion questions about mm-hmm. uh, Mentimeter, and I'll and I'll, I'll release him in just a few more minutes. I just have two like two more questions for you, and then we'll let <laughs> Chad take over because I know he's just he's scratching the table wanting to ask these questions about <laughs> Mentimeter. When when we were talking through Twitter, um, we were talking about you going through a co-creation process on the syllabus. Uh, Tell tell us a little bit about that process because I'm interested in that as well. And I'm kind of wondering how that's working out
0: for you. Okay. Um, It made a lot of sense for the class that I'm teaching, Sorry about the background noise. No, no, it's um, okay. Cool. I'm teaching a class to nursing students about how to teach. So my course outcomes had to do with a lot of things like setting learning objectives and setting expectations and evaluation of learning and planning of learning. So the first assignment in the course worth 10% of their final mark was actually to build the assignment expectations for one of three options. Two of the options were assignments that they would do later in my class, and one of the options was an assignment that they were actually working on for another class. So I worked with a colleague of mine in um, developing this assignment, and it was really interesting to see it unfold in the classroom. Um, Students were a little bit I don't know if surprised is the right word by the activity, but then once it was explained and the expectations of the assignment were made clear, it was really nice to see them kind of take it and make it their own.
1: Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Good. So um, have you have you finished the process with the students and, and what was the outcome? Uh,
0: the first assignment, so the 10% assignment is done. Um, two of the three other assignments have been completed completed now um and it, it it was interesting to see what they came up with now one of those assignments is in the other class so i don't really know how it all unfolded and my colleague and i are actually engaged in some action research now to try and get some feedback from the students and trying to evaluate how we could do this better next time Um, I can speak to one of the assignments that was in my class and it was really interesting to see that uh, several groups of students who were working on the same assignment came out with the same sort of structure for the assignment because they actually took what they had done in clinical in the past and applied it in a little bit of a new way for my class. And um, they really kind of bought into it and I I think it really helped them. learn what they needed to do in order to prepare for the NCLEX. This particular assignment that I'm talking about was actually a learning plan to prepare for the NCLEX. I would say that, you know, in my role as uh, as the educator, I needed to make sure that they met sort of like a minimum standard. And initially I was a little bit concerned that students would go into this assignment and they would be like, uh, let's do something super easy so that we all do really well. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Let's set the bar real low
0: but you know what so i came prepared to make sure that the bar was set at the at the right level but uh, because because that's kind of my role right but i was surprised that i actually had to talk the students down a little bit so i had these minimum expectations and i and i communicated what those were but then the students wanted to do more and more and so i said okay it's all right if you want to take this learning plan and make it you know more meaningful for you and and do more work than you need to. But for the purposes of this class, I need the assignment expectations to be um, like achievable for everybody. and and I need us to come down to maybe this level a little bit, which I think was really interesting because it goes kind of against what you would think would happen. And that's
2: something that resonates totally with me because as I start to step into co-creation with my students in assignments, again, I had that fear that they would try to set the bar super low and they are always exceeding my expectations. And I've done it now for two years. In every class, I've gone through like three cohorts that I've tried this with. And every single time I'm having to talk them down instead of trying to lift them up. And it's, it's amazing what our students are capable of that we sometimes don't recognize.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So, Laura, are you using any liberating structures in your in your application through this uh, co-creation stuff? Like, how, how are you getting the students comfortable with it?
0: Um, I've used liberating structures for in-class activities. Like I did the two, four, one, all, which is one of my favorites in the beginning to sort of set the tone for what they wanted to learn from the course. Um, and as part of this first assignment, I um, adapted a learner preferences survey that our teaching and learning hub created so that the students kind of knew what the class liked in terms of learning strategies and it was based on a udl framework um universal design for learning framework but i wouldn't say that the um liberating structures informed that particular activity what informed that activity was more universal design for learning as uh, as a theory. And I brought uh, Melanie Young from our hub in and she actually helped me facilitate the activity. So we had Mel, um, an expert in backwards design, come into the class along with me, um, their course professor, and then we were both able to circulate and we were both able to guide them through the process, which I think really helped.
2: What is the process of the 241, Paul?
0: oh sorry that's not the process that we guided them through but the liberating structure is the one two four all which is the one is you take one minute to um, just internally reflect on your answer to a prompt and then the two is you pair up and you take two minutes to discuss with a partner and then the four is groups of four same idea and then the all is we shared with a large group now because i teach a um kind of larger group of students. Sometimes when I do the all activity, I actually do it as a discussion, which I did in this class because there's only about 50 students in the class. But when I start getting above 50 for larger groups is when I actually use the Mentimeter for the all piece instead of having everybody talk. They basically get to text the screen and their responses come up on screen and then I speak to a few of the responses.
1: Oh, that's cool. So this this will be a good transition, Chad, for you to start talking about uh, Mentimeter. So I'll pass it over to you.
2: So a few weeks ago, I tweeted out about how I was looking for somebody who could help me out if anybody's used SMS or texting quizzes. And you came back and you mentioned that you hadn't, but you used Mentimeter. And when I started looking into it, like the whole interactive presentation aspect of it is just unbelievable to me. And my mind spins when I see it and I can't wait to play with it. Can you kind of walk us through what Mentimeter is and how you've been using it in your class?
0: Sure. Um, Mentimeter is a student response system, and basically it's web based. You log on and you can create uh, questions. You can have the questions set up as quiz questions, which are my students favorite. And then the faster that people respond, the more points that they get. And then there's leaderboards and then there's competition. And then everybody wants to be on top of the leaderboard. Um, There's open ended responses that can either be rolled into the quiz or not there's some rating responses uh, you can if you pay for it so this is one of those things it costs money if you pay for it you can import your slides right into the Mentimeter so my process is usually to create my slides which I do in uh, Google and then import them into Mentimeter and then put the questions on top um, or you could not import them now if you go with the free version you have a limited number of questions that you can ask and right now through the hub i am trialing the paid version so i'm lucky because i get to ask as many questions as i want um With my first year students, and I don't know if it's because they were sort of new to all this technology, they preferred if all of my slides and Mentimeter was all in the one place. So I would do the thing where I imported the slides and then I would have different types of interactive slides throughout. And um, I remember this one time you can add. interactives to the bottom of your slides there's like a thumbs up a thumbs down a heart a cat and a question mark i tell my students that the cat is for when you're falling asleep like if i'm taking too long on a slide um this this one time i put up uh, a description in my first year class of one of their assignments that they had to do and like everybody was thumbing it down (laughs) everybody started to laugh
2: <laughs> yeah, that's,
0: that's
2: awesome so it's totally anonymous so your students can sit there and they can actually rate this stuff while in front of you and not have to worry about anything about them you finding out who voted what
0: yeah exactly it's anonymous so they some students do put in their their name and you can look after to see who had said what but a lot of students call them some call themselves something like random um, Now, my third year group, so again, to individualizing to the learners, they actually prefer if I keep my Mentimeter slides separate. So what I end up doing is I go back and forth between the Google set of slides and the Mentimeter set of slides. The one thing that Mentimeter doesn't do that Google does, and I don't know if you've played with this, but your slides in Mentimeter have to be... um, Sort of in a line, like you start with one and then you go to the next one, and you go to the next one. Whereas in Google, you can link to different sets of the slides. So then, like sometimes I'll have a slide where I ask students a question and I can click on something on the slide and it'll bring me to a different slide with the answer and then you can go back. So um, that's one of the drawbacks I find of Mentimeter is that you can't do that sort of jumping around as much, but it is an extremely effective tool and um, all the surveys that I've done about Mentimeter have come back like students are really really happy about the use of Mentimeter in class.
2: Well it's so nice to get the students engaged instead of just lecturing at them that's what I started using Cahoots like five years ago which is very similar it's just leaderboards and questions the faster they answer the more points they get and it can be crazy how rowdy a class gets when you start getting involved with that. (laughs)
0: yeah they definitely get rowdy um sometimes but what i've asked my students is you know there's a countdown thing for when the when the question times out and then the answers come up so i've trained my students now that they can be as loud as they want until that countdown timer is done and then they pause and they have to listen to the response because that's where the teaching happens so if if all of my students are getting a question right, I'm like, great job guys, and we move on. But if some of my students are getting it right and someone's getting it wrong, sometimes either, depending on how complicated it is, I'll explain why the right answer was right, or I'll say, okay, somebody who answered this, can you please tell everybody else why that's the right one? And then the class gets into a bit of a discussion. I really like that Mentimeter doesn't have annoying music built in like <laughs>
2: Oh I hate that music Oh I hate that oh, music My students like it at the beginning and then they grow to despise it and I actually turn my speakers off towards the end of the course because they can't handle it anymore
0: Yeah I can't handle it at the beginning because I've used it uh-huh. before
2: oh. And then it's when depending nuts. if you're close to like Halloween they get spooky music they take those jingle Christmas it turns it into more of a christmas sound so oh. you know. yeah, I didn't so know it go. does that Still but. dumb. Still <laughs> dumb. When the, I do love the being able to use these as like formative assessments and be, it gives us a pulse, like a finger on the pulse of what's exactly going on in our class. That's one thing that I super appreciate about when I first started using Kahoot's and I cannot wait to dive more into Mentimeter because it sounds like it's way more interactive and there's more that you can do with it robust than say Kahoot.
0: Oh, for sure, because you can ask different types of questions. Um, I really like uh, opening a class with one of the rating types of questions because I can put multiple things on the screen and it's like rate your level of comfort with the following topics and then it helps me gauge how much to talk about those. uh, also a pre-quiz. So sometimes I'll do a pre-quiz. that's very uh, similar to the quiz at the end of the class. Usually I have, I, I teach a three-hour class. And so usually I have a quiz at the beginning, in the middle and the end to sort of break up the boring parts of class. Um, and, and the pre one really helps me know what I need to talk about later in the class. And then the one at the end really helps me know if they've gotten it throughout the class.
2: Have you read um, Small Teaching by James Lang?
0: Um, I've had the pleasure to listen to James Lang and, uh, and who else was it? Simon Bates talk about the book, but I haven't had the pleasure of actually reading the book yet.
2: Cause he goes, one of his exercises, he talks a lot about how important pretest and then mid-test and post-test can be as it sounded almost exactly like what you were saying. Pre-test, it, it helps the instructor figure out where the students are at, kind of gauges, but it also starts priming the students for what's about to happen and to learn, so it gets their brain kind of moving. And then in the middle, when you have a like a mid-assessment, it just kind of reinforces what they've learned and then gives you a check-in as an instructor. And then at the end, it does it again. It kind of wraps it all up, which it just it sounds like it's working well for you.
0: Yeah, and because my students are really competitive, uh, that middle test is really good for getting them to come back from Tim Hortons on time.
2: That's Uh, an awesome idea, actually.
1: Nice. I love that. Hey, do you find that uh, Mentimeter also helps with the cognitive load issues that uh, students can uh, suffer from?
0: I think so, because they find the content fun. And I'm teaching nursing research, which um, basically I'm talking to them in Greek half the class. So uh, the, the fact that they're really enjoying that class, I think is really good. Also, I'm blown away by the learning that's gone on in that class. And I don't think that it's all to do with Mentimeter. I think that it has to do with some scaffolding and some other things. But my students are really catching on, and they're they're performing extremely well on their assessments.
2: I'd like to get a little bit into that is when you go through your Twitter feed, one thing that I've noticed is you you absolutely love your students, and you're so proud of your students. There's a lot of student care there. And, and then as you're stepping into it sounds like more of an open pedagogy when you're teaching, what kind of started that for you? Was there like an impetus or was it just one of those things that it's always been part of your nature? But there just seems to be such a like a pedagogy of empathy and care within the way you, you speak.
0: Um, I would like to think that I've always been a student advocate and uh, I kind of did a little analysis of my timeline as an educator, as an exercise for teaching these guys in the teaching class. Um, about the development of an educator. I do think that there was a pivotal moment in my career when, uh, I had, I had come back from, um, I come back from sort of a a time where I would had some maternity leaves and, you know, I felt like I knew what I was doing. And I had a group of students that really struggled, ironically the same group of students that I'm teaching right now. And, um, when i watched these students struggle i was like there has to be something that i can do and sort of around that same time i learned about um open education i was part of the ontario extend pilot group for i mean now what's their online piece they had an in-person group i learned about what open education was and then i became one of the oe fellows and um i spent a good year and a half really investing a lot of my time into Uh, professional development learning about inclusion and learning about empathy and trying to be more purposeful about implementing that into my teaching at the same time our hub was promoting the same thing so it was kind of just like this um happy meeting of all of these circumstances that i think really changed uh who i who I am as an educator. And you could probably ask my students since they had me before and after that. Um, I've really become more purposeful about being inclusive and empathetic when dealing with students.
2: That's awesome. Your OER fellowship, that was with Ecampus Ontario? Yes, it was. And was there a, a research element to it or was it just that they just support you in what you were doing and you had to write, write a little bit about it?
0: Uh, there's a research element to it. The, the research element evolved. And, um, I'm actually working on trying to finish my autoethnography from that time, uh, right now. So I'm, I'm hoping to publish that, but it's just the, the issues in open education are, um, complex when you talk about some of the things around how do we balance all of these different aspects and, um, how sustainable is it? And I actually, I'm, I'm still struggling with how to apply it sometimes in my own practice um, because of some of the limitations that exist in in one for example, is in nursing, I know they're working on trying to get more resources, but sometimes there just aren't resources. And um, when you're given a heavy course load and it's like, here's the book that goes with the course, sometimes there's not a lot of time to change the book out for something else. And um, so this semester, one of the things that I did is I told my students I'm in this is the class about teaching. I'm like, I'm sure there's stuff out there. I haven't been able to find something yet. If you choose not to buy the book, I'm going to be as we go week by week, provide and option two so option one is the book option two is the resources that i can find to help you meet the same learning outcomes that's not the book and that actually worked really well because i found not necessarily considered an open educational resource the way that it's labeled, but a really good best practice guideline from our association that covers a lot of the same content. So I wasn't able to plan to be uh, textbook free at the beginning of the course, but as the course sort of evolved, I was able to find resources to sort of supplement.
2: I think that's an awesome way to go. That's the thing, sometimes we think that we have to dive in, having everything, all our ducks in a row, eyes dotted and tees crossed, but. I love the idea of iterating on the go there and finding things as you're progressing through the course to help them.
0: Yeah. And, and it worked. And I, and I found that, you know, just like part of my teaching philosophy is being honest with students. I was honest with them up front. I, I told them what was going on and why I was doing what I was doing and they were receptive and they were happy and they made their decisions about whether they wanted to buy the, the textbook or, Take, make use of the resources that came out as the course sort of evolved.
2: What was the percentage, would you say, that bought the textbook versus waited for the resources?
0: Oh, uh, so I didn't measure, but I did have an open book um, exam in that class. And I would say only a handful of the almost 50 students had an actual textbook with them and the others had printouts of things. So I don't have an accurate number, but it's a small number of people that bought the book.
2: And now you have all those resources for the next class, the next cohort that you, you take through that.
0: That's right. And um, because I'm part of a collaborative program, we're actually looking at changing the course to use more freely available resources across the collaboration. So not just at my institution, but at all the other institutions that offer our program.
1: That's amazing. So, um How how did your, I'm assuming that I have a twofold question. (laughs) One, I'm assuming that you have more than one colleague and how did they respond to this move into the open that you've made? Uh, And two, I'm going to assume that you have an associate dean or a dean. What was their response to your move into the open?
0: Um... I have several colleagues. Now, not all of them are aware of what's happening in an individual course, but we are having conversations around our table about trying to find more resources for students. And uh, it's actually something Uh, more open resources sorry it's actually something that not at the time that i started being open but now around the table we're all talking about okay sometimes we need to use resources but instead of all using different textbooks could we maybe find um a textbook that we can all take chapters out of um and as much as possible, can we find resources that are free for students to use? So, I mean, I haven't directly asked everybody how they feel. I know that some faculty are supportive of uh, open education, know what I'm doing and I'm happy that it's, or uh, happy that it's happening. And um, I would say that my Dean definitely supports the use of free resources in education.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Awesome. Chad, do you have anything else you wanna ask? Uh... Nurse um,
0: Well, I think
2: we're going to have to have Laura on again because we haven't even touched on your YouTube channel yet and <laughs> <laughs> like that's just uh, such a huge thing to talk about. I was actually listening to Terry Green's podcast interview with you and you, you guys spent a lot of time talking about the, the YouTube and something that interests me only because I, I do the same thing. I have a YouTube channel for electricians and very much the same kind of idea. And then when I went digging into it, it's amazing the stuff that you've built. And so I think we'll have to have you back on to talk about your process and how you create them and all the tools you use for that.
0: Sure, Uh, I'd be happy to talk about that. YouTube was kind of my, um, I was open before I knew I was open thing. Uh,
1: The gateway. (laughs) 100%. It
2: is, it's a gateway when you start. Yeah, because I started doing the same, I was building resources for my students to help them out. Yeah. And so, and then to kind of post it in there and it just kind of grew from there.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I've only been intentionally practicing open pedagogy for the last two years, but if I go back and I look like I started YouTube a long time ago and that depending on how you define open education is pretty open. I mean, it's still on YouTube, so YouTube collects data. Um, yeah. And I mean, there, there are definitely some issues with using YouTube. It's not as open as they make it look, but then also, um, I, I've, all, I've I've encouraged students even back in 2013, if I look at an old syllabus of mine, I was encouraging students to make meaningful work and post it online for other students to use to study for their tests. So I think I've seen the same thing happen with my colleagues. Um, a lot of us do open things and we don't even realize that is part of this open education movement. And sometimes I actually wonder how important it is to label what we're doing as open pedagogy, or if open pedagogy is just good pedagogy.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, I think. That's a powerful yeah, statement, yeah. I think yeah. that's, I'm writing that down, cause that's gonna be a new episode coming up here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, lots of stuff going right down. Uh-
2: Sorry, Tim, just being at that open ed conference and talking to people like that was such an ongoing theme everybody says, oh, I was into open before I knew what open was. And I think there's so many of us out there and it would be nice to let people know that there is that kind of movement out there or philosophy or way of thought or whatever you want, community or however you want to define it. I mean, that's that is for us almost the hardest part is how do we define open pedagogy? How do we define open education? And it doesn't there's definitely not one definition that you can always point to
0: yeah, and I've sort of become a little bit comfortable with the ambiguity. I think that um, my year as an open fellow with uh, eCampus Ontario definitely opened my eyes to some of the possibilities of open education. I'm more intentional and I've leveled up my game, so to speak, but I don't know that it's always necessary to tell my to tell my colleagues or my students that I'm doing this because it's part of an open education movement.
2: Um, right it can almost kind of make it seem like you're just doing it for the movement for movement's sake as opposed to just like you said good pedagogy
0: yeah and it really all comes back to what is most important for the students and what's going to empower the students to learn the way that they learn the way that they feel is best for them and i think providing options um providing ways to access the material that just all makes sense right
2: totally 100 percent agree
1: all right this is the time i need to step in and and uh (laughs) with the five minute warning bell and uh so just wanted to uh say thank you laura for coming on the show but so before i close up with our few uh questions here just want to say a big thank you for you and obviously you've said yes to the the big question about coming back and being a part of another show uh this time focused on uh the youtube and uh would be uh reaching out to you to to secure that up. Maybe we'll have to have a whole bunch of people on because I know there's a whole bunch of people doing it. That would be kind of cool. So, um, Laura, what, what are you reading right now currently?
0: Oh, I'm reading a lot of stuff about, uh, Pedagogy, actually um, I, I, right now I'm looking at uh, theory because that's one of the things that I'm teaching in my nursing research class and how we integrate that with research and practice and I came across an article I don't remember the name off the top of my head um, but about how we as nurses need to look at the sustainable development goals and try and integrate that better in our approach to caring so uh, it's not a book per se but I'm I'm looking at a bunch of theoretical articles around um, pedagogy and how we integrate with with practice
1: very cool if you were to recommend a book that somebody absolutely has to pick up this week what would they what would it be
0: oh that's a tough question um You know what this is this might come as a surprise but i really liked james lang's book on um cheating lessons and the reason why i liked it is because cheating is a thing that we talk a lot about in education and his perspective on cheating really challenges the notion that students are out there trying to, like th- that they're malicious, they're, they're not. Really, it has a lot to do with how we set up education. Are we using um, small stakes assessments or high stakes assessments? Are we making it feel necessary for students to, to cheat? And I think that if someone can read and reflect on that book, it might change how they approach the whole issue of cheating.
1: Yeah, that was a really good book. I love that book for for just that paradigm shift in and of itself instead of looking at students because traditionally in the trades vocational uh, arena, we look at our students almost as enemies in the sense that they're coming in and trying to beat my system or the system that I'm involved in. And we're not realizing that maybe they're forced into doing this because it's their only option to get through.
0: Yeah, maybe there's something wrong with the system.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So other than the uh, liberating structures to for all uh, and a couple things that you've talked about here, do you find yourself going back and using specific learning tools that just are so essential to what you do that maybe you're you're just using them almost subconsciously?
0: I think I'm probably using a lot of stuff subconsciously, which means it would take me time to reflect. (laughs) (laughs) And hence the
1: need to send questions before we interview.
0: (laughs) You know what? I I like the conversational style. Um, uh, But that's that's tough. That's tough to answer. But I think that I come back to the idea of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to use big words here, but a constructivist paradigm for Ooh. education. Ooh.
1: I guess.
2: hear <laughs> that, <laughs> that. She
1: used your, she used your term.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm in the middle of my thesis right now. One of my frameworks is constructivism.
0: Oh, well, you know what? I, I teach constructivism and in the registered nurses, Associ- sorry, the registered nurses association of Ontario's, um, Best practice guideline that I was talking about earlier. They contrast um, the traditional mode of teaching where the teacher is the expert to the constructivist and the constructivist paradigm. And I think that a lot of what I do really comes down to that idea that, you know, we need to connect with learners and we need to not be seen as necessarily the expert, but the guide. And if we're guiding learners, I think that's really what a lot of what I do comes down to because we treat them as if they are knowledgeable. We respect them. We're honest with them. And we actually listen to what they want and what their feedback is. And I can tell you from what I've seen with my students, that is way more effective than being the talking head at the front of a classroom.
2: I 100 percent. Yeah, I
1: 100 percent agree, too yeah that's good glad we all
0: agree that's awesome
1: <laughs> <laughs> alright well thanks again Laura for being on the show this has been Man, thank uh, you so, much. so <laughs> fabulous and uh, we will have you back for sure and um That's awesome. Thanks again. So everybody, uh, for those of you listening, Laura has a very uh, positive and I would say large online presence. So uh, we will include some links and and, uh, all that fun stuff in the mystical show notes. And I promise that we'll get those mystical show notes out uh, with episodes coming up so that you can uh, go ahead and clink. Uh, If uh, you... Don't want to look at show notes then just plus replay this because this episode was uh that good that you'd want to listen to it over and over and over again so that's good if you're listening to us on itunes please rate and review us give us a five star because that would help us make us feel very special <laughs> and um we're also on spotify and we're on all the other platforms that you can find us and uh, don't forget to follow laura on twitter at nurse Killam. she is there and uh thanks again laura for being on the show
0: you're very welcome. I actually have a question for you uh, in oh. terms of your podcast. <laughs> it, re- it relates to what you just said. What is the best way to subscribe so that I'm notified when your podcasts are posted?
1: Oh, Chad, let her
2: know. Well, it depends which platform you use. For use, are you an Apple Ecoverse
0: user? Uh, I am not. I have a I have an Android device, and so I've been listening to your podcast from your website.
2: Oh, okay. I, Overcast <laughs> is a good Ooh. one. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a good uh, Overcast, it, definitely go through and look at. There's different podcast players, and it's one of those things where it's just kind of personal preference. So I think Overcast is a good one for Android. This is that one good thing about. I mean, Apple has a lot of problems, but yeah, the one thing that they do well is their podcast players.
1: Can you uh, can you use Stitcher on Android? Yes. Yeah. So we're, there's a Stitcher app as well. We're on Stitcher, Laura.
0: Okay, I'll have to figure out what those things are. I, uh, <laughs> I do like podcasts. And I enjoyed binge listening to your podcast one day. Nice. Um, but I need to get better at getting the notifications that the podcast. Yeah.
2: And that's what those apps will do like Stitcher will, be, will send you a little notification. Obviously, if you set the notifications on, then every podcast you subscribe to, as soon as they release a new episode, you'll get a notification about it.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much.
1: No, you're welcome. My oh, pleasure. You. All right. Thanks again, everybody, for listening in. And until uh, next week, this is uh, Tim and we have Chad. Yep. And uh, thanks again, Laura. Right. Okay.